This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. There's a fire on the mountain burning out of control. The sky is set ablaze in all its red and gold. The temperature's rising and the wind is blowing hot. We gotta turn this ship around before we run aground. We gotta turn this ship around before we run aground. Welcome to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live over the interwebs at nhtalkradio.com, where you can find all our shows archived for your binge listening pleasure. We are a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes for all of those living in the 21st century who know how to use your personal digital devices and your laptops. You can stream us to your heart's content or listen to us right here on old-fashioned terrestrial radio from WKXL, AM, and FM. I have a wonderful guest with me today. We're going to do an entire show with Associate Professor at UNH Law, Leah Plunkett. We're going to talk about some politics because there's some political news from Leah, and we are going to talk later in the show about her new book, uh, Sharonhood, about uh, navigating the digital age of parenting. But before I bring Leah on, let's just recap what's happened uh, in New Hampshire uh, in the recent municipal elections, things look like they're swinging blue. So it's 2019. We're headed to 2020. We're halfway between the midterms and the upcoming November elections. And New Hampshire, at least, is swinging blue in municipal elections all over the state. Uh, good things happened for Democrats. Uh, Andrew Hausmer is now the mayor of Laconia. Young people and diverse people of diverse ethnic gender preference backgrounds have won seats where nobody ever thought it was possible. Something is going on. And in fact, around the country, something is going on. In Kentucky, there was a huge upset when the attorney general of Kentucky beat the Republican governor, whom Donald Trump came out to support, saying, if you don't elect this guy, I'm going to be in real trouble, or some such like that. And that spells bad news for Mitch McConnell, which gladdens my heart. It turns my heart blue, which is just fine in this case. I'm really happy about that, because I'd like nothing more than to see Mitch McConnell sent home packing. In fact, I would do the packing for him if we could send him home. 
And that wasn't the only good news. In Virginia, the entire state legislature has turned blue. So something's going on, folks. Uh, Something good is in the air in terms of the kind of change we need in this country because it's time for a new chapter. It's time for a new beginning. It's time to restore the moral authority of the United States. It's time to restore moral leadership in the White House, in the state houses, up and down the tickets. It's time for Democrats to take control with the values and progressive principles that this country needs. Now, here in New Hampshire coming up uh, in 2020, there are going to be some very interesting races. Uh, As folks know, uh, Dan Feltis, state senator in District 15 uh, from Concord, Hopkinton, Hineker, and Warner, is uh, running for governor. Uh, It's no secret that I've begun to explore running for that seat. And meanwhile, over on the executive council side, Andrew Valinsky has also announced that he's running for governor. When folks run for governor here in New Hampshire, it means they can't run for their old seats. That leaves an opening on the executive council. And my guest, Leah Plunkett, has recently announced that she is running for the executive council. Now, I have to tell you, when I booked Leah to come on the show, I thought we were going to talk about her book. And then in between, I got this email and uh, it said, I'm announcing that I'm running for executive council. So uh, I decided that it's a good idea to talk about politics before we talk about parenting, because in fact, parenting and the challenges in the digital age may have a lot to do with politics. So, Leah Plunkett, welcome to Off the Record. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. So, you have jumped into the world of politics. Um, Let's just take us back just a little bit. How in the world did you get here? Um, Where are you from? Where have you been? What are you doing? And uh, then we'll uh, talk about your, your run. Thank you so much, Paul. So I moved to Concord 12 years ago. My husband grew up here in New Hampshire. We were in D.C. and we decided that this was back now in 06, 07. We were in D.C. and decided that we wanted to move to New Hampshire and start a family here. We have done that. We have two kids, three if you count our dog. When I first got, which I do, right? First child, uh, elder statesman of the of the child tribe. I get that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, When I moved here in 2007, I started working at New Hampshire Legal Assistance. I founded a project that still exists there called the Youth Law Project that exists to provide civil legal services for at-risk and court-involved kids. So school discipline, uh, special education, and those types of proceedings. I had an amazing time doing that. I worked uh, with Senator Feltis, um, with John Tobin, and, and many others whom I know you know as well. And then, Paul, this was during the Great Recession. And I thought, what can I do to broaden my impact from being on the front lines of direct services? So representing kids and their families and individual proceedings, very meaningful, very rewarding, but things were kind of falling apart for the families I was working with. And I'm always asking, what can I do to be of service? So I took a job for a couple of years at National Consumer Law Center in Boston, still living here the whole time, but commuting down a couple of days a week. 
and doing uh, economic justice work. So I developed an expertise in auto lending, payday lending, consumer rights for survivors of intimate partner violence, and many other areas hitting families in New England and across the country. Loved that, but then thought, gosh, is there a way to even sort of take a broader look in terms of legal research and writing at issues that are impacting kids and families? And is there a way to be a teacher? Because I love doing those things. And lo and behold, I was fortunate enough to get a two-year teaching and research fellowship at Harvard Law School. Did that for a couple of years and then joined the faculty at UNH Law in 2013. I am currently, and I say this for identification purposes only, I am running in my personal, not my professional capacity, um, but I'm currently an associate dean, an associate professor of legal skills, and the director of academic success at UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. And I'm also a faculty associate with the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society down at Harvard. And so that's kind of the professional CV. Um, In terms of my civic engagement, over the last dozen years, because I really just see running for office as a new and different form of civic engagement. I served on different Planned Parenthood boards in the region, both Planned Parenthood of Northern New England, the 501c3 that runs the health centers, and also their C4 side, Planned Parenthood New Hampshire Action Fund, which I most recently had been chairing before I stepped off of all Planned Parenthood boards prior to announcing my executive council bid. I've also been an ACLU of New Hampshire board member. I think it's been about five years, and I still do serve on that board. And so being civically engaged on behalf of children, women, and families, reproductive freedom, individual freedoms, and civil liberties more broadly is something I've been doing now in various forms. I think it was over a decade I started Planned Parenthood Board Service in 2008, and I've been fortunate to be a very involved and engaged volunteer for a number of state and national races. Well, that's a resume. And uh, the the students at the UNH School of Law and down at Harvard are very lucky to have you. Well, thank you. Uh, because lucky you, to have them. You've developed a remarkable expertise um, and c- a clear dedication to uh, service that is um, remarkable and needed these days, uh, especially um, given given the tone of politics these days, did you have any hesitation about getting into the political fray? Because you'll be facing a crowded primary field. There are at least three other candidates who come to my mind who either have announced or are seriously exploring running for what will be an open executive council seat. Uh, and then um, you'll be facing a Republican opposition um, I assume you're running as a Democrat. Correct. Well, that's a boy. Am I smart guy? And <laughs> and then on the other side, you know, all Democrats running are going to be facing in New Hampshire a Republican Party, which is uh, characterized by um, some of the same ugliness that we have seen in uh, our national politics, uh, starting at the at the top and filtering down so that the Republican Party seems to be the party of Donald Trump and here in New Hampshire, the party of Al Baltazaro and a governor who is Trump in sheep's clothing. I mean, he's he's affable. You know, he's an ah shucks kind of affable guy, but uh, his arrogance is unmatched. His policies are Trumpian. And uh, you can expect if you become the nominee to be embroiled in 
in perhaps a, a nasty battle for a position that up until a few years ago wasn't even really considered political. What do you think? I welcome the opportunity to serve, and I am excited about a crowded primary field, and I'm excited to hopefully be the nominee come September 2020. I think a crowded primary field is good for democracy. Uh, it's certainly good for the Democratic Party, so big D, but it's also good for democracy, small d, that at a time of, I agree with you, Paul, unprecedented crises in the rule of law in our country and our state, so at all levels. I think the more people who are excited about stepping up to serve in by running for elected office, the better. And part of why my husband and I moved to New Hampshire is we do civic engagement like no one else, whether it is the school board, the Rotary Club, a nonprofit board, a for-profit board, being in the legislature, whatever it is, we're in it. And I'm excited to take the skill set I've developed as an advocate and also a trusted fiduciary of other organizations and be an advocate and a fiduciary at the executive council. For those of my listeners who may not be completely familiar with the governmental structure in New Hampshire, we do democracy here like nobody else does. We have the fourth largest legislature in the English-speaking world, 400 state representatives. Um, behind, we're behind the United States Congress, the Indian uh, Congress, the British Parliament, and then it's the New Hampshire House of Representatives in terms of numbers. Um, so we've got 400 state representatives. We have 24 state senators. We have one governor, and we have a five-person executive council, uh, which uh, which is a very important body because we have a relatively weak governorship in the eyes of some people. The executive council reviews uh, contracts, uh, in, and I think the limit is all contracts over $5,000 have to go through the executive council, and all appointments that the governor makes have to be reviewed and approved by the executive council. It's a very, very important job. Um, what do you hope to accomplish, and, and what's, what, what do you see as your approach to serving on the executive council? I hope to accomplish the advancement of putting children, women, and families first, protecting individual freedoms, especially reproductive freedom. As your listeners may or may not know, the Executive Council plays a unique role in ensuring that women in the Granite State have access to comprehensive reproductive health care. In terms of approving or not approving funding for Planned Parenthood and other family planning providers, and also even more important, Paul, approving or not approving the governor's judicial appointments. And at a time when we have effectively lost the Supreme Court, I would say, when it comes to trusting them to uphold the constitutional guarantees at the federal level for the privacy to make one's own individual reproductive health choices, we need to make sure now more than ever that our state court judges understand the importance of upholding those rights. So I see myself, and you know, you go to the Executive Council website, it says it exists to be advocates for the people. I see myself as an advocate for the people and also a trusted fiduciary. I believe in being open minded, understanding both sides, being a problem solver and a listener. That said, there are some things that I am absolutely unwavering on. 
and the set of principled commitments and values that I just reviewed around putting children, women, and families' interests forward, as well as making sure that we're protecting our individual freedoms in our court system and in our agencies. I'm unwavering on those. Um, But I do, of course, understand and respect and embrace, as both a lawyer and an educator, the need to understand both sides, hear all of the issues, and make a reasoned, ethical forward-thinking decision. This is Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. We've been talking with Leah Plunkett, associate professor at the UNH School of Law, candidate for the Executive Council. She lives in Concord with her husband, two kids, and a very important dog. We're going to take a short break. Don't go away. We'll be back with more Off the Record. It turns out that Leah's also a noted author with a new book called Sharonhood, Navigating the Digital Age of Parenting, and we're going to be back and we'll talk about that. Don't go away. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM. Stream live over the interwebs where we are archived for your binge listening pleasure. We're also a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. So get your thumbs busy on your iPhones, your Androids, your Googles, and all of that. And check us out at nhtalkradio.com or Google, Stitcher, or iTunes. Join my dozens of listeners who binge listen to past shows. My guest is Leah Plunkett. She is, among other things, an associate professor of law and an associate dean at the UNH School of Law. She works also uh, at Harvard University. She's a mom. She's a civic activist. And she's an author. Her new book is called Sharonhood, Navigating the Digital Age of Parenting. Uh, It's on sale everywhere. I was recently out in Ann Arbor, Michigan, visiting friends and their number one book behind the counter. It had a big number one on the really great bookstore in Ann Arbor, Michigan, was Leah Plunkett's book, Sharonhood, Navigating the Digital Age of Parenting. And it turns out that I just missed Leah because she had been there the weekend before in Ann Arbor talking about the book. So in addition to her duties um, uh, with UNH School of Law and Harvard, in addition to her uh, busy life as a mom and civic activist, in addition to her candidacy for the Executive Council um, of New Hampshire, she is also an author whose book has been reviewed uh, really favorably everywhere I can find a review of it. So, Leah, welcome back to Off the Record. Um, you know, I, I said before we went on air that I always thought of myself as somebody who lived many lives. I mean, I, um, I, I, I've been a musician, a civic activist, a, I've led not-for-profits, I've been an attorney, I have served in the United States Congress, I've got this radio show, I've worked on startups. I, I, I don't know, I, I think I, I take off my hat 
to you because I think you win. Um, I've decided that you live more lives than I ever did, and you carry it off with complete aplomb, uh, grace and style, enthusiasm, and uh, an optimistic idealism that is something to cherish in the modern era when so many are so cynical about what can be done. So my hat's off. Kudos to you. Let's talk about your book, Sharonhood. What is it? What's it about? And give us some background about how you came to focus on the issue. Thank you, Paul. I'm profoundly grateful for that very kind introduction. Sharonhood is part of the Strong Ideas series at MIT Press, which is designed to offer provocative ideas about technology and everyday life from academic experts to members of the public so that we can have a wide-ranging conversation about the technology issues in our everyday lives. And I got interested in the topic of sharenting, which is a word that's increasingly gaining traction. I did not invent it, but I do have a somewhat unique take on it. Usually when you see sharenting and like the New York Times Privacy Project has been using it a lot recently, for instance, they're using it in a very narrow, specific way. They mean when parents put pictures on social media. To me, that's only the tip of the sharenting iceberg. And that properly understood, sharenting is everything that parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, teachers, and other trusted adults do with children's private information using digital technologies. So sharenting is not just social media. It's having a an Alexa or a Siri active in your home. It's giving your child a Fitbit. It is even, Paul, using a fertility tracking app or fertility tracking bracelet when you haven't had a child yet, but you're trying to have one. Mm. It's using an educational technology, ed tech, app in a school. And so I started in 2013 doing research with the youth and media team at the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard. And our research was focused more on what youth, defined broadly as 12 to 18-year-olds, were doing with technology themselves, which is incredibly important. I became increasingly interested in what we as parents and other adults do with our children's information on their behalf. And the reason I became interested in it when I did was that I at that time was the mom of one young child. Over the course of this research, I became the mom of two young human children, plus my very important dog. And I wanted to figure out for myself what I was doing in terms of sharing information on Facebook, what I was comfortable with in terms of do I post a picture online or do I text it? Do I use a video-enabled baby monitor that's connected to the internet or do I do the old-fashioned, let's just keep an ear out? So the book was really a bringing together of my professional legal research and writing and my personal experience of thinking, I don't pretend to have all the answers I don't even pretend to have any of the answers, but I have a lot of questions, and I think I do have some guidance on how to approach the answers. So I have been fond of saying to folks that uh, we are analog beings trapped in a digital age. 
Um, you know, I mean, we uh, computers in some ways, people say, are modeled on the way our brains work. And when we're finally able to model uh, the neurological processes that move through our own synapses and to come up with computers who are as adept and flexible as our brains. Who knows where we will go in the digital age? But it strikes me, and it has struck me for a while, that uh, the digital age has presented both opportunities but also great challenges. Um, as, as humans, uh, we evolve very, very slowly. And uh, I, you know, I'm thinking back to the Kubrick movie 2001, where there are scenes of early humans discovering fire or discovering a stick as a tool. And as humans, we create tools. I mean, that's one of the things that apparently distinguishes us um, from other species on the planet is our ability to create tools. So we've created these digital tools. As uh, Tom Friedman, the author and writer, says, we're in an age of acceleration where change is moving at exponential at an exponential pace. And in fact, change in terms of digital technology and other technologies is moving exponentially. Do you, uh, what's your view on whether or not as humans, we have the capacity to adapt, understand the consequences of what it is we've created, and uh, deal with the challenges that the digital age presents us. And I know that's kind of a, a big overarching question, but it comes to mind um, hearing you speak about the challenges that parents face in dealing with the digital information as it relates to their kids. I love the big questions. I think one of the unique challenges of digital technology as opposed to inventing fire, inventing the printing press, um, inventing you know the radio, let's say, is that we stop noticing the technologies because not only are they in our homes, but they're on our bodies and sometimes now in our bodies. They make smart pills that you can take. Um, that help use sensors to determine if you've actually taken them. So I think we are in a unique moment with respect to the human technology struggle slash uh, progress that has been going on for time immemorial in that we don't necessarily even realize anymore when and how and to what extent we are using digital technologies. We, they're not even visible to us. And that makes it very tricky for us to get a handle psychologically, intellectually, emotionally, and certainly from a legal and regulatory perspective into how we should think about these devices that are not just in our homes and in our offices and in our purses, but on our wrist, potentially inside our body. And I'll, I'll end on this one. They now make a smart diaper. Paul, they have a sensor-enabled diaper. It only does urine. It does not do bowel movements that you can put on your baby, and the smart diaper will tell you when it needs to be changed. So talk about digital technologies in places that you would not expect to find them. Consider that when I went to the United States Congress uh, in 2007, early 2007, I had a government-issued BlackBerry, 
and all the communication was on blackberries. For those of you too young to remember, blackberries were an early attempt at a digital phone. They had these little screens that were not even touch screens. They were these little screens and you typed everything in and it was pretty cumbersome. It was pretty rudimentary. By 2010, when I uh, ran for the United States Senate and got clobbered, um, there were iPads, there were smartphones, and iPads were just being allowed um, to be used on the floor of the United States Congress because when iPads first came out, they said you can't use your iPads. You know, nobody could get a handle on what that meant for communication. Fast forward, we're 10 years later. We're 10 years, essentially, after the introduction of the smartphone and thinking about the proliferation of technologies that you have mentioned, the miniaturization of communication tools that can be implanted not only in people, but in baby diapers, uh, is a mind-boggling excursion into both the possible, but also the challenges that it poses for us, uh, especially in an age when we've just come through a national election in which uh, the misuse of digital technology has had a tremendous deleterious impact on our election. We had Russia hack into our election and use digital technologies, an army, a, ver a literal army of uh, cyber thugs from Russia uh, who targeted our elections and, uh, and hacked the elections. Uh, we'll never probably really know to what extent that had an impact, but it certainly had some impact. And here we are now as parents, and I'm not a young parent um, anymore. My kids are 34 and 36. M you know, my, my son Max grew up on Pac-Man, which compared to what is available in digital video form now for, uh, for games is, is, is a laugh. Uh, you know, I mean, it's a laugh. And so what your book deals with is a, a landscape that is evolving very, very quickly. Um, so let's talk in this segment a little bit about what your research shows, and let's start talking about some of the questions that you raise in the book. So one of the things that I look at in the book is what are the categories of likely harms, but yeah. also potential benefits of sharenting. And the book identifies three broad categories of privacy and related harms to kids as a result of sharenting. The first comes from actions taken by those that are criminal or unlawful or dangerous. And those are increasingly getting familiar to people from media reports, but things like taking children's personal information and manufacturing fake identities and applying for credit. Um, in fact, there are some law enforcement agencies, the Utah Attorney General's office comes to mind, that have had specific divisions or bureaus on child identity theft because it is such a specific problem. There are people who would take innocent pictures of kids and Photoshop them or re-image them to make them pornographic and, and heinous. There are 
potential predators. And we do know, unfortunately, that for children who are the survivors of abuse, very often that abuser is someone in their broader social network. So to serve up via social media information about a child's likes or dislikes or to have your child wearing a surveillance tracker that can be hacked or accessed by people who might want to know your child's whereabouts for horrendous purposes. Those are dangers from from sharenting. We're going to take a break for a word from the sponsors who keep our station on the air. Hold your thought. We're talking with Leah Plunkett, uh, associate professor at UNH School of Law and associate dean there. She also works down at Harvard. She's running for the executive council, and she's the author of a really interesting new book called Sharonhood, Navigating the Digital Age of Parenting. This is Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM. We'll be back after this. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com for your binge listening pleasure. We're also a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes, so you can hear us around the globe at any hour of the day or night as your schedule and your likes may dictate. We're talking with Leah Plunkett an associate professor and associate dean at the UNH School of Law. She also works at Harvard University. She's a candidate for the executive council. She's a mom, two kids, a dog, a great husband, a really smart guy who I like a lot. And she is the author of a highly highly appreciated and well-reviewed book called Sharonhood, Navigating the Digital Age of Parenting, which is available wherever books are sold. You can find it certainly on the internet. You can find it at bookstores uh, across the country, and it's an important book and an important read. Leah, welcome back to Off the Record. We were talking before the break about some of the dangers you identify from the practice of sharing digital information with all the available and burgeoning technologies at our disposal. Um, There must be some good news out of this as well. There is plenty of good news, Paul. So there are dangers, including potential criminal activity, lawful but sort of suspect activity like data brokers gathering information and using it for advertising purposes, as well as downsides to children's ability to develop their own sense of self and reputation. But the positive aspects of it are also incredibly strong. So digital technologies allows access to information, people, and even places in certain ways that would otherwise be 
out of reach. It offers the opportunity for teachers who might be resource constrained to differentiate and personalize educational content delivery. So you might not be able to teach with one teacher and 20 kids in a classroom five different levels of reading at any given time. But if some of that reading is done on an app that personalizes learning, that's a huge benefit of sharing kids' information digitally. And of course, the personal is political. And so the unprecedented ability of parents to take to social media and other forms of digital organizing to surface their unique situations and find company. I'm thinking in particular, Paul, of parents who might have a child with a disability or chronic health condition or parents who may be facing issues of discrimination and other forms of adversity, their ability to bypass more traditional channels in media and society and just make their stories heard is incredibly powerful. And we need digital tech for that. Right. It would otherwise be impossible. I mean, you know, uh, Mark Zuckerberg has recently um, been before Congress. He's now on a charm tour trying to charm folks about Facebook. After Facebook was used by Russian trolls in the election, he has now famously, at least famously with me, announced that Facebook is not going to uh, screen it's advertising for for truth or lies. He's just gonna let it let it go. Uh, Facebook, in a short time, relatively short time, has become a huge monolithic uh, and potentially dangerous uh, place to hang out digitally. It's also um, a place that has created a lot of benefit for a lot of people in terms of connecting people in ways that that they couldn't um, be connected before. So we've been talking with you, Leah, about both the perils, pitfalls, but also the possibilities that sharenting, the sharing of digital information about your children, pose in a, in a new era. As technology accelerates, do you have recommendations uh, for uh, parents in terms of their use of digital technology as it relates to their kids. Keep it as low-tech or no-tech as possible to accomplish your goal in a given area. For instance, going back to my smart diaper example earlier, the sensor-enabled diaper that tracks urine output. Actually, when I gave this talk at Literati Bookstore back in Ann Arbor, Michigan, I talked about the smart diaper, and then I talked afterward to a pediatric urologist who said, look, there are times when I really need parents to track urine output, and they're not doing a good job of it, so a smart diaper would be helpful. So absolutely, if it's a doctor-recommended smart diaper, go for it. But otherwise, this is an example of an activity that you can accomplish accomplish without privacy-threatening digital technology. For example, you could set an alarm clock and say, I'm going to wake up in three hours and check on my, my baby and see if my baby needs a diaper change. Or you can just look for that soggy bottom. Is it is it dragging? Is the kid is the child upset? But it's, again, they're low-tech or no-tech solutions. <laughs> I'm, thinking, I'm thinking of my kids 
<laughs> you know, in my my experience, it was my kids are in their thirties, and it seems like it was the age of the plesticine of the plesticaurus. You know, I mean, it was it was like I'm the, I, I was the, I'm the tyrannosaurus rex of parenting, <laughs> given given the the early eighties when when I when I had my kids. It's a brave new and sometimes scary world. Um, but I can I. I'm I'm not a a total dummy, and I I can see the benefits if a doctor says you know we really need to track something carefully. So uh, here's here here's here's a a method that 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 you that you can use. It's an it's an interesting example of the opportunities for for low tech. I when I tra- you know I often uh, when I travel or when I'm out in a restaurant or somewhere else. I I see parents uh, who have their kids with them uh, out at dinner or something like that, and I'm seeing really really young kids, really tiny kids, all of whom, uh, and and often the entire family who are uh, on their digital devices all the time. It's like it says uh, the digital devices have become the new uh, babysitter. They've become. Uh, almost ubiquitous, and kids are learning to use their thumbs on screens uh, and 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 deal with digital interaction before they're able to walk or talk. It seems. What's going on? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it just a thing? Is it what? What's 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 a what's an old guy like me to think? I am pulling out my book now, Paul, and saying that the sort of infantainment, right? So the digital entertainment for infants and really young kids is a thriving industry. So I'm reading now from my book, apps meant to appeal to toddlers and preschoolers are both the most popular type of app and the category that has experienced the fastest growth in recent years. And you were talking about digital devices being almost a type of babysitter. There are also now digital devices and services that are going further than an app and are trying to be sort of almost an artificial intelligence type of nanny product that is engaging and responding to the child. So it is definitely a thing. I am going to say that when used as a replacement for playing with children, for having an adult in the house that is paying attention, it is not a good thing. And I I mean this free from judgment. I certainly have in the course of writing this book, for instance, been known to, you know, my, my son will kind of come up and I'm just trying to finish, you know, the one last work email or the one last edit. Can I have your phone, mom? Okay, fine. Here, take it. You know, just look at Netflix. Don't do anything else. Well, that is a type of sharenting. My son is too young to really make that choice for himself. I'm giving him a digital device. My phone is picking up his information. So my reflection there is offered from the perspective of a parent who herself has to navigate it and struggle with it. But I will say it is not only a thing, it is an unfortunate thing, and it is a thing that we should fight against. We've been talking with Leah Plunkett. Among other uh, extraordinary achievements, she is the author of Sharenthood, Navigating the Digital Age of Parenting. You can find it online uh, through your digital devices. You can find it wherever good books are sold. It's well-reviewed. It's well worth a read. Leah, thanks for joining us on Off the Record. Thank you, Paul. Such a pleasure. 
We are off the record at WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the Internet at nhtalkradio.com. We're a, a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. We'll be back after this brief break to wrap up. Don't go away. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where our shows are archived for your binge-listening pleasure. We're also a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. Well, this week, we were fortunate to have as our guest Leah Plunkett. Leah is, among other things, a mom, an associate professor of law, an associate dean at the UNH School of Law. She works at Harvard. She's running for the Executive Council of New Hampshire for the seat that Andrew Volinsky is vacating, and she is an author of a really important new book called Sharonhood, Navigating the Digital Age of Parenting. That book is about the perils, the pitfalls, and the possibilities that the new digital age bring to parenting. It was quite an interesting conversation for a guy like me who brought up his kids in the age before digital was digital, before there was ubiquitous smartphone, before iPads, before video games, before, well, almost before life, because we all walk around married to our smartphones with our heads bent, our shoulders hunched, concentrating on our screens. We give the screens to our kids at an early age. What's a parent to think? What's a parent to do? I recommend the book highly, Sharonhood, Navigating the Digital Age of Parenting, to all parents and everybody interested in what the impact of the digital age is on us and analog human beings. This is Paul Hodes. It's Off the Record. WKXL AM and FM. Thank you to my listeners. We'll be back next week with more Off the Record with Paul Hood.